I want to begin by doing something dangerous, and that is making some statements out of context, but I think it'll help us to better understand things in context. So I want to tell you that it's vital that you do two things. It is vital that you love, and it is vital that you imitate Jesus. Good news, encouraging news. If I waited for a little while, I'd like to then say, how are you doing with that? The mandate is you should love and that you should imitate Jesus. Well, those are true statements, but if that's all you hear today, I think if we're honest, we're pretty discouraged because we all know that we don't love the way God expects us to. Jesus affirms that, and we don't follow Jesus perfectly because he's absolutely perfect, the one and only one who is absolutely perfect. And so if my message to you is, okay, everybody, love. Okay, everybody, imitate Jesus. Hopefully you'd say to me, thank you for telling us things that are true, Pastor, but do you have any good news for us as sons and daughters of Adam. And the answer is, I do have some good news for you. And I want you to see it now in context. And it's the context of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So we're looking at Ephesians as a book, kind of a flyover, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Today we're in chapter 5. We've got, I think, 32 verses. So we're going to need to speed things up. But as we look here, we're going to see we're supposed to imitate... God, and we're supposed to love. True, not necessarily good news, but they come to us in a lovely, amazing package in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God, notice, as beloved children. And before I move on there, notice, we're not to be imitators of God on our own, And if we're good enough at being imitators of God, which would be a good thing, if we're good enough at it, eventually we'll be accepted. No, Paul's writing to Christians. And so he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's writing to those who are beloved children. He's writing to those who are in the family, and they're not just in the family, they're beloved in the family. And so now we're called to imitate out of a position of blessing and safety which frees us to not be terrified, frees us to find motivation. And if we keep reading in verse 2, it says, and walk in love, isolated on its own. I've got problems because I don't do that perfectly. I don't live a life of love perfectly. And walk in love, but then keep reading, as Christ loved us. It's it's, It's true, but it's still not good news. But keep going. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh, another one where we're called to walk in love, we're called to obey, we're called to love, but it's out of out of a position of safety because Jesus, as our text says, gave himself up for us. Which is another way of saying, we know according to the Bible, he gave himself up for us as our substitute, as our sacrifice, voluntarily going to Calvary's cross to make atonement, 
satisfaction so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have peace with God, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can have justification and all these great, amazing realities. It's out of that place we're called to love. Now, I'm working all of this through because I want you to hear this loud and clear. Apart from Christ, imitate God and love are true commands, but they're not good news to us because we're sinners. And that's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 have covered. Dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind, all of those dark things in chapter 2. And then it's, but God made us alive together with him, right? For by grace you have been saved. And we have the good news about what Christ has done. And now here's where we are. Where we are now is writing to Christians. Christians do the right thing. Everybody's always been called to do the right thing. Do the right thing out of a place of the family. Out of a place of safety. Out of a place of, remember what Paul says in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what we do as Christians. We say, okay, I'm no longer a child of condemnation. I'm no longer led around uh, by satanic influences. I'm no longer spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. God, you've made me alive. God, what would you have me to do? What would please you? What would bring you as a gracious heavenly father who's provided everything for me? What would make you happy? That's where we are. That's where we are as Christians. I don't know anyone who says they're a Christian who wouldn't agree that Christians should do things that honor God. And that's where we are in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So if you're not a Christian, it is true you should love perfectly and imitate Jesus perfectly. And if you don't, you should go to hell. Let's be honest. It's a perfect standard. But that's not going to be my tone and tenor today because he's writing to Christians. I'm addressing you today in a Christian church. Some of you aren't Christians, I would imagine. But my target audience today would be Christians. And so what you hear today shouldn't be the pastor's mad at you. What you shouldn't hear is condemnation. What you should hear is God's requirements from the hand of the Savior. Not God's requirements from the hand of the judge. That's actually an important category, but that's not Ephesians 5. And so I can't wait to have the best I can, pray for me, a warm, encouraging, pastoral heart toward you who are Christians to encourage you to act like Christians and to encourage you to no longer act like you used to act before you were a Christian. In so many ways, I want you to leave here encouraged. Oh, you might feel a little guilty, but you shouldn't feel condemned if you're in Christ. You might feel motivated. You know, I could do a better job. That's fine. But it's out of a place of safety because we're Christians. We're united to Christ. I want to encourage you today because no doubt he's encouraging the Christians to act like Christians in chapter 5. And it's great we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today because we'll end with, do this in remembrance of me. If we're Christians, we want to do the right thing. Communion, if it does anything, and it does many things, 
reminds us to be resting in the work of Christ for our reconciliation to God, which should cause us motivation to do the right thing out of a position of safety because we're in the family. Well, with 30, I said 32 verses, with 33 verses to go, I had better pick up my game. So here we go, Christian Living 101, chapter 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians, and he's going to elaborate on verses 1 and 2, what this looks like, okay? What does it look like to have, uh, to be imitators of God? What does it look like, like to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? Well, he, he hits the ground with controversy. How about verse 3? But, if you're going to do that, here's what you don't do, but... Sex, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So here's what I want you to do. And let's just start off with some big controversies in the first century. Because if you think sexual deviancy is a 21st century novelty, you haven't read much history about Rome or Greece or lots of other places. But he knows where they've come from. And he's saying, now that you're in Christ, no longer live like a fornicator because you're in Christ. Stop with the, he uses the word porneia, which is a big inclusive word for sexual deviation. It would include heterosexual sexual deviation. It would include homosexual sexual activities. So in biblical terminology, porneia is everything outside of sexual intimacy between a biological man and woman who are married. Okay? Well, unbelievers do all the other stuff. They do all the porneia, and he's saying, you're united to Christ now by faith, so what I want you to do is... Not even have it named among you. It's not even in your spiritual zip code. Doesn't even make any sense. As is proper, as is fitting, as is adequate among the saints. He also includes general impurity. He also includes covetousness. There we go. Greed. Driven by self or stuff, acclamation. In a little while, he's going to equate it with idolatry because we're worshiping the stuff. So that helps us with the idea. But the, the, the idea here is pretty general and, and, and simple. You used to be driven by the stuff. You used to walk according to your passions. That's chapter two. And now I'm calling you to walk, which is a, a metaphor for the way you think, the way you act, the way you conduct yourself, the way you speak. You're not driven by those things anymore. You're driven by the Spirit of God. How about this? You're now part of the new creation, so don't act like the fallen creation. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? Right? We know 2, 8, and 9 quite well, which is fitting, and I'm glad. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. I'm paraphrasing to get done quickly, lest anyone should boast. But then he goes on to say, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Think about creation. Think Genesis when you read that. Think, oh, there was the good creation where good was established by God and how things should work, even in relationships between 
human beings and God and human beings. And so there's the good creation. Then we have the cataclysmic fall where things go badly. And now we have spiritual death and separation and hostility and demonic leading and all that just driven by our, our lustful passions. Chapter 2, 1 and following. And now, 2.10, you've been created. Think recreation, fixed, um, solved, restored. Now you've been recreated is the idea in Christ Jesus for good works. And now he's saying, walk in them. Live in a way that honors God. Don't live as a Christian like a non-Christian because that just doesn't even make sense. This is like a Sesame Street moment for those of us who grew up in the 70s. I mean, it's that simple. One of these things just doesn't belong here. Acting like an unbeliever, that's pretty consistent for unbelievers. And now we're believers, new creations in Christ, and it makes sense that we wouldn't walk that way anymore. And pastorally, not do this or you're going to hell, pal. You don't get that flavor when you read all of Ephesians. I can go there if you want me to. (laughs) You don't get that flavor when you read all of Ephesians. New creation in Christ. As beloved children, we belong to the family. Now act like a beloved child who belongs to the family. That's the idea. So I want to encourage you. If you're a Christian, let's act like Christians. It's so easy to look down our pious noses at the world around us with all of its different kinds of deviations and be disgusted by it. And we should be. But we shouldn't be living the same way. We should be living differently. And we can live differently if we're united to Christ. Well, he moves on to talk about our speech. Our speech is also influenced. It says in verse, or should be, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. I love the way he puts it. They're out of place. They're out of place in light of chapter 2, verse 10. They're out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let's not have dirty talk. Has anybody else had their mouth washed out with soap? I I shouldn't ask for a show of hands. My mom did it to me when I was a little kid, and I wasn't even saying that bad of words. She's not here to say I was, but... And I bit her hand as hard as I could. And I, I mean, the wrath of Carla Abendroth was unleashed. And I, she picked me up by, by my belt buckle, like on my tough skin jeans, you know, and just carried me and just like threw me in my room. I was just like spitting soap everywhere, terrified. Well, I don't know why I brought that up. I'm still in counseling about it, but <laughs> no filthiness. It's actually not a bad image for what we're seeing here because there's literally no such thing as dirty talk that soap could get rid of. But it's a lesson. Don't, don't, you used to talk badly, destructively, like you were just driven by passions in some kind of animalistic way and had no self control. But you know, now, new creation, Wouldn't it make sense that the things that come out of your mouth and my mouth would reflect new creation? It would make sense. And I do love what he says here. And he says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
Now, I think it's probably impossible to have everything that comes out of our mouth be Thanksgiving. Wouldn't that be weird if that's all we ever said? Hey, how are you today? Thanksgiving. What are you going to go for? Where are you going for lunch today? Thanksgiving. What if we just, that's all we ever said is Thanksgiving. That's not what he's looking for. But if we're united to Christ by faith based upon no merit of ours, <laughs> every single thing that comes out of Pat's mouth could, I'll say should, reflect my status before God in Christ. And I can have a grateful heart and it can affect the way I treat my friends. It can affect the way I treat my enemies. It can affect the way I speak most certainly, which takes us back to why we keep going back to the work of Christ on our behalf, something we don't deserve. We deserve condemnation. We receive justification freely. Of all people, Christians can be thankful. And it should affect our lives to the point where it affects the way we talk. It affects the way we talk. That helps motivate me. To the degree that you can help me remember who I was and who I am, it's going to influence everything from my used to be a fornicator, now I'm not, and so I need to live like that, to my speech, to my everything. That's the gist of chapter 5. A pastoral exhortation, yes, but from a pastor who cares saying, let's act like Christians. Let's act like Christians. He says then in verse 5, for you may be sure of this. Here's the kind of assurance verse you don't like, okay? Because the, the door swings both ways. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, there's our pornos word or a porneo word, or impure, so more general, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. So now he further defines it for us because if it's just all about the stuff and the possessions and the amassing of things, status, influence, that just shows who our ultimate motivator is and it's idolatrous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I'm going to keep doing it. I've done it multiple times already. The kingdom of Christ in the New Testament is associated with the new creation so in my margin, I wrote chapter 2, verse 10. I'm a new creation. That means I'm a citizen of the kingdom. It doesn't make any sense for me to act like I'm not if I am. So we watch unbelievers act like unbelievers. Doesn't mean it's okay, but they are acting true to their nature. By nature, children of wrath, it says in Ephesians 2. But we have a new nature. So it doesn't make sense for us to act like they act. We should act differently. Not from a self-righteous, self-pietistic, oh, those bad people out there, they deserve God's judgment. Actually, we all do, and God has been gracious and merciful to us, which is why the Apostle Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's why he not only wants to do the right thing, chapter 5, 4, 5, and 6, he also praises God for this reality in his life. Then he says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. These are, these, are, these are fake words, lying words. They're words, but they're not true. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And we just saw what the, these things are. So don't let people say, well, you know what? There are other kinds of Christians. 
there are regular old Christians, and then there are progressive Christians, and then there are these kinds of Christians, and these kinds of Christians, and so these other kinds of Christians would say that those things are actually okay. Well, the Apostle Paul, even in the first century, anticipates that. Don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. This is how Christians are supposed to be. This is how Christians are supposed to talk. This is how Christians are supposed to live. Verse 7 says, therefore, do not become partners with them. I don't want to take that out of context and say you can have nothing to do with unbelievers because that would violate lots of other texts. But clearly the intention, right? Clearly the intention is we don't partner with them in their behavior. The crazy of all crazy is for a Christian to not act like a Christian. Surely that's the idea. Okay, how about verse 8? For at one time, you were darkness. What a blunt way to say it. Not just in darkness, you actually were, were, were part of the, 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 the fiber of things. For at one time, you were darkness, chapter 2. But now, that's a lot like what he says in chapter 2. But now, you are light in the Lord. Notice it's in the Lord. It's not by, by, by what you have accomplished. It's in the Lord because of what he's done by his work. It's gracious. It's free to you. So therefore there's an implication. Look at the implication in verse eight. Walk as children of light. That, that great metaphor, word picture of capturing your life. It's your walk. And remember in chapter two, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We were demonically led against the will of God. Now we walk differently by the spirit of Christ because of the work of Christ. We have a different kind of walk. And so again, I'm going to appeal to you, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, Miss Christian, Ms. Christian, whichever one you would like. Let's act like Christians. act like Christians. Then verse 9 says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So light is associated as a word picture with what's good and positive. Fruit is good and positive. And do notice what comes as a result, good, right, and true. And I had to write in my margin, good according to Christ, right according to Christ, true according to Christ. Surely that's the idea. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I don't think he says try to to discern what is pleasing to the Lord because it's so hard to figure out. Everything we've been reading is pretty straightforward, right? It's not like, hmm, it's a mystery as to what's pleasing to the Lord. What about my morality? Maybe I should just pray about it. No, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord in light of what he's been saying. Maybe it's because it's emphasis on we should actually put forth some effort to do this, to, 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 to try to discern this. Or maybe it is actually where it's not altogether clear. Okay, A lot of things are altogether clear. And we don't have to say, well, I'm going to pray about that. You don't need to pray about it if it's patently clear. You don't need to wait on that if it's patently clear about what's right and wrong. But there are complications living in this spiritual Babylon kind of world and decisions we have to make. Maybe that's the idea. And so 
we, we need to work really hard. Well, why would I work really hard? I have other things to do. Because it really matters that Christians thoughtfully act like Christians. It is a priority. It's a big priority if we're working to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Think about even how you could define a Christian. What, what, that's a good way to define a Christian. Well, a Christian is someone who's united to Christ by faith. Let's start there. But maybe let's move then to Christian living. What does it look like to be a Christian? Well, somebody who wants to please Christ. Somebody who wants to honor God. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. And that becomes our fundamental greatest desire. Verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That helps us to understand what he's getting at here. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So we're in light. We are light associated with Christ. Saved unto good works, new creation, good works. So let's avoid the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. No doubt we can define what he means in verse 11 by what's already occurred. As he's been talking about the things we're not supposed to do anymore. We could say those are the unfruitful works of darkness. Isn't it interesting he says expose them? Sounds kind of fun. Let's just go around looking for bad people acting badly and say, caught ya. Well, it, it doesn't seem to fit the tenor of what our ministry is. But we would call sin, sin. Since it's associated with walk and his life and our lives, it seems probably like it's more a byproduct of what just happens. I wouldn't stake my salvation on this, but it does seem to be the idea As you do these things, as you don't do other things, as you're living for the glory of Christ, something does happen and good gets put on display, not because you're inherently good, but because Christ is good in you. But the other thing that happens is you're not joining in. You're not affirming. You're not celebrating, as we have to say in our culture today. And you know what? A certain kind of ministry happens and it's an exposing kind of ministry. Doesn't sound very fun to me, but it is something that happens and it happens for good. In fact, it can be pretty costly to us at different times in different places. But it does happen. Okay, how about verse 12? For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Why would it be shameful? It's shameful because God who is good made a good world with good things and gave us good direction. What a shame that anybody would not do what's good and right for them and for the world around them and glorifying to God. It's shameful to even speak of those things. What's fascinating here is at least the people he's talking about are doing it in secret, which isn't always the case. But when anything is exposed by the light, the light of the believer's life, the light of the truth spoken or lived out by the believer, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, if you're in hearty agreement with verse 14, you probably just fell asleep or aren't paying attention. Because verse 14 is weird. For anything that becomes visible is light. 
What does that mean? You know what my very, 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 very favorite commentator says about it? Admittedly, Paul's language is compressed, but the logic appears to be that the light not only exposes, it also transforms. Oh, wait a second. I got ahead of myself. He said, we don't know what this means. I don't know what this means. How can we know what this means? (sighs) Sorry. Punchline. Next service, I'll get it right. (laughs) So the best, like, Greek exegetical expert commentary says, we we don't know what this means. Well, but then he takes a stab at it, which I read, and I should have read it later. He says, the logic appears to be that the light not only exposes, it also transforms. So the idea, perhaps, according to that commentator is, verse 14, anything that becomes visible is light, maybe because of the flow of logic. If you're doing this and you're living for the glory of Christ and you're speaking for the glory of Christ, indeed, that is exposing darkness. You know what might happen? Is it might lead to somebody else's life changing. It may turn them into, if you will, being on the side of light. Now, I think that's true whether or not this passage teaches it or not. Some of us have seen it happen before. Because a Christian lives a certain way, it leads to someone else being offended, which leads them to sometimes being convicted. And before you know it, some, then, then we move forward and now they want to know the truth about Christ. And now they, they join the rest of us and become Christians. That's true. Might be the idea here. Verse 14 goes on to say, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One reason why people think verse 14 at the beginning means what we were just talking about is because of what it goes on to say. This seems to be this this cry out to unbelievers to look to Christ and to experience salvation. Therefore, it says. Now, if you can find that quote in the Bible, I have a crisp $100 bill for you. Ready? Go. We can't find that exact quote in the Bible. There's a couple of places in Isaiah that get really close. Maybe he has two statements in mind. Most Bible-believing scholars believe that it was an early Christian song or lyric from a song that was written down. But that's not really important for our purposes. The idea is live like a Christian for the glory of God in Christ. It's good for you. It has an exposure kind of ministry. And God may use it for the salvation of others. Verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, how you live, how you act, how you do all the things that you do. Here's a good application for Pat Abendroth's life in the 21st century. If it's walk is all inclusive, look carefully then how you tweet. Walk is inclusive. Look carefully how you post. We were led around by our impulses. And now we're led around by the Spirit of God. You know what, Pat? It would be good if the way you carry yourself, walk, reflected that. That's helpful. 
not as unwise, verse 15 says, but as wise, making the best use of the, t- of the time because the days are evil. Hmm. Okay. Do you use your time wisely for the glory of Christ? Do notice how I'm asking it. Not as a condemning judge. Hopefully as a caring pastor. Because he's addressing Christians. Trying to get Christians to act like Christians. Because we belong to the king. We're in the family. Oh, okay, then I want to do the right thing. It's okay to be convicted. But do know he's addressing Christians who are united to Christ. Well, here's what more of this looks like. He says in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That doesn't seem to be a mystery in our context. He's been telling us what the, what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or sinful, but be filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit. That's a rather interesting way of putting things. Both are states that are unnatural states. So don't be controlled in this kind of unnatural state, but it's actually a good metaphor because you should be controlled in a different kind of unnatural state, which is the state of the spirit. So you were controlled, Ephesians chapter 2, by demonic forces and you followed your sinful heart. And now you're to be supernaturally controlled in a way that again is not natural, but supernatural, controlled by the spirit. And addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That relates to what we learned earlier about thanksgiving, no doubt. And here it comes again, verse 20, giving thanks. I mean, all of of those things reflect a thankful kind of heart, don't they? Always and for everything. Giving thanks always and for everything. That, that, I think I, I hate to pick on plaques. I actually like plaques, but I think last week I was picking on plaques. How about that plaque on your desk? Give, what does it say? Giving thanks always and for everything. Taken out of context, I think that, that could be kind of a downer. Giving thanks always and for everything. Yeah, but do you know what I'm going through in my life? But it still would be true. Maybe it's a plaque we should buy for ourselves, not for other people. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't make it a plaque. But in context, the reason I bring it up this way is because I want you to see in context that it carries with it a lot of meaningfulness. The Apostle Paul's writing from a Roman prison. See, sometimes we think I can do the right thing and be thankful as long as everything is going good. But it's like an excuse when things aren't going good, then I don't have to do the right thing. I don't have to act Christianly. So the Apostle Paul is a good example here. He's writing from Roman imprisonment, so things aren't going good. And he's telling them to always give thanks and in everything. So already I'm going, okay, that helps. But also, let's think of the theology of the Apostle Paul that can allow him to say this kind of stuff. Remember in chapter 1, this all, the, the God who works all things after the counsel of his will, chapter 1, verse 11, with a predestinating plan, finding the fullness in Christ, 
to whom the apostle Paul is united to by faith, and so are the Ephesians, and so are you, and so it is with me if I'm a Christian. That, see, see, there's a theology behind the statement that can make the statement actually something we step into and we embrace and we can affirm it because, you know what, I can give thanks in all things. Because the God I'm resting in, trusting in, who's made me, has made me a part of his new creation in Christ. I can do it. Even when my life is going badly, I can actually speak fittingly and appropriately that reflects thanksgiving. How in the world could you do that? Because I'm seeing beyond what I can see with my own two eyes. If you can do this, and assuming we can by the spirit of God... This is supernatural kind of stuff. This is extraordinary kind of stuff. Christian living in the trenches and in the hard times can reflect a pretty amazing thing. The world world would be different to the degree that we can live like this. Giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen the Spirit, now we have the Father, now we have the Son. That is how all of this happens. How about verse 21? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that's the driver, reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ, the judge? I don't think that's the tone or tenor of this book. Jesus is a judge. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians doesn't have that in view for the believer. So out of reverence for Christ, out of awe, the appropriate kind of reverence, that drives me in my relationships, even submitting to one another. See, it always actually does come back to the gospel. How can I have right relationships with fellow sinners who aren't glorified yet? That's a big ask. Christians are called to have good relationships with one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always in all things. What? It's because we are in awe. We have reverence for Christ, who is our Savior, who has made us new creations. And now he gets into some illustrations of this. It's not exhaustive, but here we go. And I'll go as fast as I can. Wives, verse 22 says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yeah, but my husband's not perfect. Tell us something we don't know. Right? But he's thinking, okay, think about Christ and think about what he's done for you. He's forgiven you. And now you're in a relationship with a fellow sinner. Guess what? You have a context and you have an ability and you you have an understanding of this. Then it says in verse 23, for husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I would read this in context because I don't want to be a cult leader. Everything that is in the will of God, we've already seen. I would look at other texts as well if we were really going to take a lot of time here, like First Peter chapter 3, showing honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. There's a lot going on here. This is not to be isolated and misused or mishandled. Let's keep going, though. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
You know, if there were, I should preach this on Father's Day sometime uh, as law. I actually am not going to. It's kind of interesting. I, I read enough things about churchianity and they talk about usually Mother's Day. It's all awesome and wonderful. Not always. I've heard some pretty, I've heard some doozies on Mother's Day. Um, and then for the husbands, it's just like burden, 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 burden. Um, I like the idea of burden both ways and gospel both ways. But, but let's just pick on husbands for a minute because I am one. Maybe that's why we do this. How about if we take verse 25, husbands love your wives. Let's just leave it at that. Is that law or gospel? That's law. As wives go. (laughs) It might be good to love your wife, but it's not the good news. It's what God expects. Husbands love your wives. That's law. But do notice, if we're unbelievers, and if you don't love your wife perfectly, you're worthy of condemnation. But he's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. And so what's so fascinating about this is there's gospel all over it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, that 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 helps me. That helps me on two levels. It helps me in the sense that my wife doesn't have to be perfect for me to love her sacrificially because the church wasn't perfect when Christ loved the church sacrificially. Far from it. So now I can love my wife even if she's not doing everything perfectly. I want to be careful what I say here. She's in the service. So, but there, but there's a, there's a Christian way to think about this in relationships. And not only that, my wife can also look at this and say, my husband needs to love me as Christ loved the church even when I'm not at my best. But there's also the greater context of the gospel, right? She too knows that I have been forgiven because of Christ and through the work of Christ because I myself can't be a perfect lover of my wife. So there's law, what God requires, and there's gospel, what God provides. But see, we're on the other side of things. I don't know how to do that with my hands. We're on the other side of things where we've experienced hearing God's law, so we're condemned. We've experienced believing the gospel, so we're justified. Now we want to do the right thing. So wives act in a way that would honor God in your relationship. There's a way to do that. Husbands act in a way that would honor God in your relationship, and there's a way to do that. And if you can remember the gospel, you'll be able to do this even though you're not married to a perfect person, is the big idea at least. Christians acting like Christians. It says about Christ, this isn't about the husband, even though we want to imitate this kind of stuff. It says in 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Remember, this is Christ and the church. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Perfect wives, perfect husbands, even though they're not perfect wives and perfect husbands. How about that? Because of a perfect savior. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He's calling us to look at all of our Christian thinking and relationships through a gospel kind of lens. Verse 31 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it, that it refers to Christ and to the church. However, 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I've probably been guilty of emphasizing those things outside of a good gospel environment. I know I've thought of those things outside of a good gospel environment. But maybe let's grow spiritually and say, he's writing to children, children of God in Christ. If you are truly a Christian, you're in the family and there's absolutely nothing you can do to get out of the spiritual family. That's chapter five, one and two. Christ died for your sins. To the degree that we can get this, we can find true, genuine, gospel-driven, gospel-drenched, gospel-soaked, you get the idea, motivation to do the right thing. Even when maybe other people around us who also name the name of Christ aren't being as successful at it as we are. The world can be a different place. Omaha Bible Church can be a different place. And so what I promise to you is to keep telling you what God requires, to tell you what Christ provides, God provides in Christ, and to keep telling you, therefore, let's act like the new creation that we are. Yeah, but pastor, I'm going to forget. I know you're going to forget because Jesus implies that you're going to forget because until I come again, he says, here's our communion tie-in, do this in remembrance of me. Redemption is not by being a perfect husband or being a perfect wife or being a perfect anything. Redemption is found in Christ, but we're motivated to do the right thing if we're in Christ The law is coming to us not from the judge, but it's coming to us from the Savior. And that makes all the difference in the world. May God bless you, and I mean this, as you pursue godly living because you're in Christ. And so you don't have to be afraid of condemnation. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as Christians to not sound like we represent a different religion when we're talking about Christian living. Help us to be clear on this and help us to be clear in a way that would make significant changes in the world we live in, in our own sphere of influence, in this particular local church, that Christ would be honored and glorified by our trusting in him and Christ would be honored and glorified in our living for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.